We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. I was brought up in the United Kingdom by parents who could trace their ancestors back many generations to the same corner of England. I never realized how insular I was, how uninterested in the outside world, and how I thought I lived at the center of the universe until I moved to Germany five years ago and discovered, surprise, surprise, there were other ways of doing things. So today I'm going to be exploring if opening ourselves up to other cultures can deepen our understanding of the world and help us find a more meaningful life. My guest is Barbara J. Zitver, who is an international literary agent and the author of The Korean Book of Happiness, Joy, Resilience and the Art of Giving. She lives in New York with her husband and two dogs, but has been visiting South Korea for 12 years and has fallen in love with the people and their way of doing things. So, Barbara, what in your childhood prepared you to be so open to another culture? I think that my grandparents were immigrants and came through Ellis Island, and I was surrounded by, you know, people who were immigrants and from different countries. And my family were very open minded, very liberal. I was obsessed with movies and I loved movies and watched movies. You know, I never went to school. I watched movies. And also I was a very (laughs) avid reader. I didn't go to school, but I was like a great reader. So I think that reading and I loved, you know, international literature. I loved Tolstoy um, when I was young. Um, So I think that I discovered different worlds and different people that interested me a lot. And I grew up in a suburban town on Long Island called Baldwin. I was born in Brooklyn, but then when I was very young, my family moved to Long Island. And I think it was extremely boring to me. And the people were very, it was all white. I think we had one African-American girl at the time in my class, in the entire school. And I think that I was very attracted to visiting New York City. We went to New York City, which is about an hour and a half from where I lived, every weekend. And we saw theater shows. New York City was like my backyard. And of course, New York City is probably the most international city in the world. So I think I was so excited and attracted to things that sparked my imagination that I thought were exciting as opposed to living in suburbia, which I found extremely boring and couldn't wait to get out. (laughs) So how did your connection to South Korea happen? It was totally by chance. And what happened was I started in publishing as an international scout. And so I scouted books for foreign publishers 
and told them what books I thought they should buy from America. So for two years, I was a consultant for international publishers. My clients were from all over the world. Then I became a literary agent because I wanted to be more involved with the books, not just telling a publisher to buy a book, but I became actually some authors that I was promoting said, why don't you be my agent? So immediately, I, when I started my agency like 23 years ago, I sold translation rights all over the world. And I hired and worked with a team of international co-agents in different countries. So I have an agent in Germany, in France, in Italy, and in Korea. And so one year, this was like 14, 15 years ago, my co-agent from Korea, who maybe sold one or two books for me there, came to New York. I didn't know him really, but I said, you're in New York. Why don't I take you out for dinner? You're in my town and I'd like to treat you to dinner. So as we were talking, I, you know, my big problem at the time was that I was very specific about what kind of books I liked. I only took on what I was passionate about. And I found that I didn't have enough books to sell. I'm always looking for something interesting. So I was at this point and I said to him, like, aren't there any hot young writers in Korea? Like, I have no books to sell. And he looked at me like no one had ever asked him that question before. Because <laughs> no one had ever asked him that question before. And he said, oh, yes, there are. And he started telling me about different authors. And I was just astounded. And one of the authors, the first book I sold was by Young Ha Kim. It was called I Have the Right to Destroy Myself. And Young Ha Kim, it was daytime in Korea. And it was, we were in an Italian restaurant at night in New York. But I, we got so excited. Joseph said, this is my co-agent. Oh, I'll call Young Ha Kim. So he called him on the phone and he spoke English. And I was talking to him and I'm like, I just fell in. Oh, this is so great. I love the title. And I stepped into it just wanting to explore, find new books. And then when I read some of these partials in English, because they weren't translated, I thought they were brilliant. No one had ever heard of any of these authors outside of Korea. None. Hong Kong, The Vegetarian, Kyung Suk Shin. I mean, on and on. All the people that I represented and discovered. So I was astounded. And I have learned over the years, like, and a lot of the books that I represent, they were published 20 years ago, 15 years ago. No one in the world heard of these books. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of resistance from English-speaking people from books from elsewhere in the world. Why do you think that is? I think it's because they have no familiarity with the culture. They don't know about these people. And like, for instance, with Korean books, it's a different kind of sensibility. It's a different way of storytelling. And it's like eating a different food for the first time. Like at one time, no one heard of bagels and locks. Now bagels and locks are served on airplanes. 
You know what I mean? Like, it's like everyone knows bagels, but like years ago, no one ever heard of a bagel. So I think, because I've thought a lot about this, I think that at the beginning, it's not necessarily easy or as comfortable as reading a book that you're used to reading the way they tell the story. A lot of Korean books, the stories are told by multiple points of view and by different characters. Like I have one thriller and it's about a female serial killer. And her story is told by her daughter, her ex-husband, her sister, but it's not told from her point of view. So it's a very different kind of way to tell the story. So I think that's part of it. It's something new. And I think with Korea, what's helped Korean books a lot is the success of films like Parasite, Squid Games. And when everything started streaming and we were locked down with COVID, because I saw this and I analyzed this, people all over the world, in England, in Germany, in Brazil, suddenly they were watching K-dramas, Korean dramas. Everyone fell in love with Squid Games. Pachinko, but Parasite won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film with Subtitles. And that really changed, I think, the way a lot of people see, you know, began to understand and have familiarity and started loving Korea. So why do you think it's important for us to spread our literary wings and read not just English and American novels, but to read from all over the world, not just Korea? Well, I think that we learn about different points of view of humanity, of philosophy, of ways of being. And I think that's really important. And I have changed my experience of visiting Korea, but reading a lot of Korean literature, or I I read a lot of Polish literature. I love Scandinavian crime. I think in the broadest sense, when we read and fall in love with books and characters, it brings us closer to each other and different cultures. And the goal of life is to have a peaceful world. And we can become more peaceful and loving towards each other with people from other countries through literature. And it's the best kind of diplomacy, I think, that you could have. So let's go back 12 years. What was it like for you arriving a native New Yorker, so to speak, in Korea, in Seoul? It was incredible. It was absolutely fabulous. I mean, I'm a very adventurous, daring person, and I've traveled alone my life all over the world. I love exploring. I hit the ground running. I talked to a million people. So when I first arrived, I was totally jet lagged and it was like three in the morning and I was at my hotel and the hotel television had their own kind of like advertising. And there was an ad for Temple Stay and the ad was like two people are running in a field and they're like, are you stressed out? Do you want to feel better? Go to Temple Stay. Now, I had never heard of Temple Stay in my entire life, but I called up the front desk and I said to the concierge, 
I have to go to Temple Stay. What is it? Book me. I'm going to be here these amount of days. I have to go to Temple Stay. So that was my first day. That was like the first hours. Like, I'm going to Temple Stay. I'm going to find out what this is. And then I found out the next day that there are Buddhist temples all over Korea in the mountains. And they're working temples with monks, but they allow you to visit. And you can sleep over, you can work there. The one I went to, it was the winter. I went alone. I took a taxi myself and the cab driver didn't speak English. And he said, okay, get out here and walk up that hill. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, okay, great. So I walked up the hill. I'm in the middle of nowhere. And then suddenly I see all these butter lamps, you know, all the beautiful colors and these steps. And there I was at this, temple, this monastery, I was the only English speaking person. And there were like 10 monks, a woman who worked there and me because it was the winter, nothing else. So, so I'm like, it was fantastic. I was living in a movie. And what happened was they gave me a room and I was walking around and my friends in Seoul said to me, oh, Barbara, this is so great. They couldn't believe that I was going to Temple Stay. They had never gone. And they were so proud that I discovered this. So they said, don't bring your phone. Don't bring your laptop. Just experience nature. Don't talk, you know. But my one friend said to me, make a friend. So I'm like, okay. I get there and... No one speaks English. And also, I'm supposed to be meditating and communing with nature. How am I going to make a friend? Well, I'm walking around the grounds with my camera around my neck. And suddenly, I hear a man's voice say to me, oh, would you like me to take a photograph of yourself? (laughs) (laughs) And I turn around, and there's the most handsome Korean man in a ski jacket. And I was like... Oh my God. Yes. And it turned out that he was there. It was a holiday. He was visiting, just hanging out at the temple, praying. Well, we ended up becoming friends and he, we spent the day together and he showed me how to do the 47 bows and he, there was a little tea house. He took me for tea. I had the most fabulous time and we didn't stop talking. And (laughs) Then I had a meeting with a monk. You have tea with a monk and you can talk to the monk. And we've said goodbye to each other. Also, all these temples are like on islands in the middle of the mountains. The landscape is so beautiful. I mean, you really feel like you're in a film. It's like Shangri-La and you're so far away from everything. And so I was talking when I sat down with the monk and this woman was translating from me, I started like crying. And I thought about my husband who had recently needed a liver transplant and he got it. He was totally fine. I helped him get it. It was kind of harrowing because we had to leave New York and go to Kansas city. And it was a whole drama, but He was completely fine. And I never cried. I was just like, okay, he needs a liver. I'm going to find him one. That's it. So now I'm like thousands of miles away. I'm at this Buddhist temple and I'm crying and thinking about my husband. And I didn't tell the monk this, but I looked at him and he just said to me, we're happy now. 
And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I thought, I am so stupid. Like, why am I crying? I took myself thousands of miles to be here at this like most precious moment with this monk. And I'm crying about something that it doesn't exist anymore. It's in the past. And that moment was so profound. And then we had a conversation. I started laughing and it became a mantra to me, actually. And I think it's all over my book because we're happy now. We only have now. The past is gone. The future, we have no idea. Everyone worries, including myself. But when you think about it and meditate on it, we're happy now. And it changed me. And I hear his voice in my head. That's how profound. And that was like 12 years ago. So your book is called The Korean Book of Happiness, Joy, Resilience, and the Art of Giving. And there are three really interesting ideas, and I'm going to do it in the Korean. I hope you're going to love my accent. He says, making a blind attempt. The first one that is really important is something called Han, which you translate in two ways as resilience and endurance. So could you give us an example of that in action from Korea? Totally. These characteristics, I would say they're in the DNA of Korean people. The Koreans have a persistence, a drive that has propelled them from enslavement over hundreds of years, thousands of years, their entire history, to success. Everyone there, it's we before me, which is very, very different than America and the West. Like, for instance... This was during the 80s. They were, the country was on the verge of bankruptcy. And the government asked all the people in Korea to give up their gold so they wouldn't go bankrupt and have to borrow money from the World Bank or whatever. Every single person in Korea gave up their gold, their wedding rings, their candlesticks, their everything, their Olympic medals. And the country did not go bankrupt. And that is typical of Koreans. Koreans help each other in a way that is very, very unique. Like when Korean people come to America, for instance, or in England or in any other country, and there's already a community and a new Korean person will come over, that group helps them. They band together, they take their money, they invest in the new person, will start a business for them, will help them. I've never seen such a camaraderie among anyone. Everything, it's not individualistic before the country. Everything is about the country and helping each other. So the next one is Hung, which is translated as joy. Can you give us an example of joy from your own experiences in uh, Korea? Yes. Joy is taking a hike in the most beautiful forest that you could ever imagine. Kyung Suk Shin, a famous author and friend of mine, took me on this island to a Buddhist memorial. There's a huge Buddha built into the mountaintop, and you have to walk up a thousand steps to get there. And the steps are high. And I was like, I lost 60 pounds. I was a lot heavier then. <laughs> 
So I was like, oh my God, but I'm going to do it. And we had a friend who couldn't walk the thousand steps. It's walking up this huge mountain. But when we got up to the top of the mountain, that was joy. And I started laughing and that's joy. Joy for Koreans, I think, is sharing meals, eating and sharing food. Food is a very essential component of life, of feeling, of joy, because so many Koreans starved to death during the Korean War. And in North Korea, they're still starving. So it's like every meal is a blessing and every meal is a joy. And I've never seen people eat happier than I have in Korea or eat so much. And each meal, I was staying on Jeju Island with Kyung Suk Shin and they had a breakfast. I mean, it, it was just like a smorgasbord of like leaves and roots and all kinds of things I never ate. And, you know, we got we stuffed ourselves on vegetarian breakfast. Then we're driving around like an hour later and she's like driving the car, pulls it, turns, makes a sharp U-turn. She's like, oh, we have to go here immediately. So I'm like, where? Where are we going? <laughs> she drives up to this little building. It looks like it's a concrete building. And all graffitied, it, it looked like, I don't even know what, like some drug hangout, you know, in the <laughs> South Bronx. <laughs> and she's like, they're going to close at noon. We have to go there and have seafood porridge. And I was like, are you kidding? I'm stuffed. There's no way that I can eat anymore. So we go in and everyone, it's just a seafood porridge restaurant. And they bring out the seafood porridge, which I still, it's the best meal I ever ate in my life. And I'm eating the porridge and something squirts in my mouth. And I'm like, oh my God, what is that? She said, oh, it's a sea squirt. And I said, I feel like I'm eating the ocean. I love the ocean. So I, I mean, that is joy. That is total joy. And the part of it that I think is the most interesting, I'm going to try and pronounce it yong, which is the art of giving. So giving is different in uh, Korea as it is everywhere else. So tell me about that. Yes, very important. I think it's part of the idea of we before me, but they're very respectful and very honor any guests when you come to anyone's house, when you go anywhere, you have to bring gifts. And this is Asian because a, a friend of mine lives in Hong Kong and I've been to China like 20 years ago with him. Many, I mean, he would bring like four suitcases full of gifts. I say, what are you doing? Like enough with your shopping. No, no, no. I have to give a gift to everyone. Sneakers. But in Korea, the gift given it's a way to honor the person, to show your respect for the person. It's crucial. I mean, when I go, I'll tell you a funny story if you want to know. I was coming from England and I was stopping in New York and then I was going to Korea and I had to bring gifts for like 50 people. Like I see so many different editors, all the authors, I mean, every journalist, everyone. So that year, I went to the Lake District, and there is a little shop that sells gingerbread, 
And you can buy little packets of this gingerbread and it's packaged in white paper and it has the label. It's like a little house. It's so charming. So I thought, oh, I'm going to bring little packets of gingerbread. I bought like a hundred of them and I'll give them to everyone in Korea, right? So I packed my suitcase and I laid it flat. And the friend I was with said, you're going to get stopped at customs because they're going to think it's cocaine. (laughs) I said, oh my God, it's gingerbread. So I bring this gingerbread back and I love it. It's so delicious. And I schlep it all the way to Korea. And I'm meeting like a translator who translated my book because I wrote a book that was translated into Korean and published there. And I give it to her and she says, oh, I was there last month. (laughs) (laughs) And you put it beautifully in your book that this giving without expecting to get anything back shows, and this I think is just wonderful, the invisible thread that holds us all together. Exactly. Exactly. Because I think that when you help people without asking anything in return, you get so much happiness by doing that act because it's about helping someone and making someone feel better and making life easier for someone. Now, one of the problems is we tend to think everybody has the same values and sees everything and culturally is the same as us, particularly when we only watch Western movies. So we can make some unfortunate mistakes. Did you make any mistakes when you went to Korea that uh, upset or offended people without meaning to do it? Well, yes. (laughs) See, the first time I went... I was just like full on. I love it. It's fabulous. And I really didn't know that much about Korea or the customs. It's like everyone's fabulous and whatever. Now, years later, and also I have a junior partner named Sue Park, who works with me now for for over three years, who's Korean, but she lives in New Jersey. She's Korean American now. So she explained. So I was on a Zoom call with some Korean editors handling film rights to a book that I was handling and interested in. And I was going on like, oh my God, I love this book. And, you know, I talk with my hands. Mm, I noticed. Okay. So after we got off, Sue said to me, I'm just telling you they got it. But I explained to them, it's extremely rude to talk with your hands in Korean. (laughs) They never talk with their hands. They keep their hands down. But Sue explained, oh, Barbara, she's just, you know, an excited person that, you know, it's like Italian, you know. So they have the highest life expectancy in the world in Korea for women. Why is that? I think that, first of all, the diet of the people is the healthiest anywhere. Most people eat mostly vegetarian. They have a lot of soups. They don't eat processed food. They don't drink, especially the women. They don't smoke. I mean, maybe the men do, but the women don't. All the food, it's all natural. And when they have protein, they use it like a spice. Like if they'll have steak, they don't have T-bone steaks like at Spark Steakhouse in New York, you know, they don't have a big hamburger. They will slice it thin so it's like a piece of fruit. So I think the diet has a huge, huge, huge effect. I think also 
everyone walks everywhere and the national pastime is hiking. So every weekend, everyone goes hiking in the mountains. That's what people do. They don't go watch football. They don't go watch tennis. They don't go to the movies. They go hiking in the mountains and they do it as a family thing. Everybody does it. And of course, the hiking, as I talked to Sue about this, she said, well, everyone goes hiking so they can eat the lunch when they get to the top of the mountain. (laughs) And she said, and Barbara, it's not sandwiches. They bring pots of food and like, you know, all this like amazing food that they cook. But I think a lot of people, they cook themselves, they eat broths. And one thing I noticed immediately when I was the first time I was there is that women don't wear high heels. And I was like, oh my God, no wonder they're so happy and comfortable. (laughs) They're all wearing flats. And when you think about wearing high heels, it ruins your feet, it destroys your knees, it destroys your legs. My sister had four operations on her feet. Now she just broke her ankle, but she always wore high heels. People go running down the street in high heels in the West. So I think that they're extremely hardy. I know, like, for instance, on Jeju Island, this is very interesting. Jeju Island is where the Henyo women divers, who are the fisher women of the sea, and they're really like a national treasure now. But years ago, all the men on the island were kidnapped by the Japanese. And so there were no men on the island. It was just women, children, and old people. So the women had to farm the ocean to get food. And this is a metaphor for Korea. So it's a group of women, say eight to 10 women, and they work together. They fish together. They pull all their food together. They take off their clothes. They change into their outfits together in these groups. And if one woman is sick, they all take care of her. If one woman Two women don't have a big enough bounty. They share all the fish that they've gotten. And the women, the ocean, being in the ocean every day and what they eat, there are women who are like 90 years old diving in the ocean. Also, they take time. They take time. Everyone is not in a rush or doing a trillion things at once. And I think this contributes to their health, definitely, and and their longevity. Okay, we're going to take a break and then we're going to be back to discuss a letter. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So there are many ways of getting involved with A Meaningful Life. You can go to our website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. You can find out how to sign up for our newsletter and get a twice a month article from me and the latest news from the program. And you can also participate as well. Go down and you'll find participate in the program. And in there, you can send me a dilemma and I will discuss it with one of my guests. And this is the letter I've got today to discuss with Barbara. My son would like to study something creative at university, like English and theatre studies. 
but I am concerned that he's going to make life hard for himself. I try and point him to something better geared to getting a job or joining a profession where he will not be living from hand to mouth. I want to say, how are you ever going to provide for a family? But of course, at 17, he does not think like that. So I'm torn between letting him lead his own life and be done with it and offering the practical view of someone who has more experience in the world. Isn't that the job of a father? Yes. I've been thinking about this letter a lot. And first, I will say that everything that people do in life can be creative. Being a nurse can be incredibly creative. Being someone who works in the post office can be very creative. So the idea of what is creative is something that this father could discuss with the son. But I think what I would say to my child or to this boy was, that's great to be creative. And I applaud you. And there are all different ways to be creative. What you have to think about is where we are at in the world and what's happening. And the biggest change in any creative endeavor and in in many other jobs is AI. And there are going to be jobs that just do not exist anymore. In five years, by the time this young man is 17, graduates from school, AI is going to be writing novels and people are going to be given the chance to write a human-generated novel or a AI-driven novel. Accountants, this, that. I mean, AI, it's a revolution and a change That is probably maybe the most significant thing since the Industrial Revolution, or it's going to change the world as we know it. It already is. And it's going to diminish many, many jobs. So I think that I would try and educate and share with my son what's happening now and what's happening in the future. But the other thing is that creative people, people who are purely creative, or you just want to be a painter. Okay, we all know that Gauguin never sold a painting in his life and died in a mental hospital because everyone, he thought he was crazy and his brother supported him. A 17-year-old will say, oh, well, I'm not that. That's ridiculous. But the truth is that most creative people have two jobs or three jobs. There's no one I know who's doing creative work that doesn't have, like, I'm a literary agent. I write books, but I do that on the side. I wrote a play, which was actually performed in three theaters with movie stars, Marlo Thomas and F. Murray Abraham. It was a play about Jacqueline Suzanne. I wrote the play at night and on the weekends, and I had my job as a literary agent. So most creative people, most people today have more than one job. So I would say that be as creative as you want, but it's completely unrealistic to think that you are going to support feeding your dog, especially at the, unless you're a genius, you know. Or you've got a very small on, dog. Yeah, just on your art. But I could Google and give examples of, I mean, so many writers, painters, they're all teachers in universities. Everyone has a stable gig. So they have health insurance and they do this and they teach writing or painting or whatever. Sue Park is a poet. She writes the most beautiful poetry, but she's not going to earn a living 
selling her poetry. So I would say, yes, be creative. And I discussed with Sue because she went to English department in the university. And she said, Barbara, they teach the history of English. He's going to learn about books from like hundreds of years ago. He's not going to learn anything contemporary or art or what to do. I went to film school. I went to Columbia University Film School. And they don't tell you how to get a job on a film and making a film. And the way I got a job was my sister was renting an apartment of hers to a film producer. And when she gave him the key, she said, oh, you're making a film in New York City? My sister just graduated from school. Could you give her a job? And I got a job like entry level, getting coffee, sweeping the floor. So I think there are all different ways of being creative. Listen, I've spent my life in creative pursuits, but a young man has to know it's a lot of sacrifice. You're not going to have a car, probably, and you're not going to be able to pay for health insurance, probably. And, you know, when you're 17, you don't think about these things, but... I would encourage creativity. I would say, especially because he's so young, if he could get an internship or a job, even for a short time in whatever he's interested in, whether it's being a painter working in an artist studio or for a photographer working in a studio, he might discover the actual work of what he's doing isn't what he thought it was either. Like I wanted to be a film producer. And I actually did make a film. I produced Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage. It was an independently produced film. I raised the money and it's now considered a cult classic. After that, I said, I am never producing a film again. (laughs) And I'm certainly not going to do it for anyone else. And I made no money. It was a big bomb. It wasn't Barbie or Oppenheimer, you know, obviously if that happened. But that's not most people. Most people, like most actors, I don't know what this young man's passions are, but most actors make less than $25,000 a year in Hollywood. This is why they're on strike. They don't have health insurance. They can't pay for anything. But I think there's a balance. And we always discuss this like in film school and art versus business. It's like art versus life. So there is a balance. But I know and I believe if you're a creative person, you are going to create no matter what you have to do, no matter if you have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to write that novel, you're going to do it. And then you're going to go and be able to feed yourself and pay for your rent. I think that I would try and encourage him completely. And there are many jobs that are involved with creativity, but not just, oh, I'm going to be a painter. That's brilliant from uh, the career point of view. I'm going to talk from the father to son point of view, because it is the job of a father to point out another alternative and another perspective and to share your perspective. One thing I would say is it always works much better if you talk from personal experience rather than trying to talk in general terms. So, you know, the way that Barbara's just been talking just now, talking about her own personal experience, that really brings it to life. And I think that uh, you need to share from your own perspective. But our children have to find their own way. So, yes, it is the job of the father to share your experience, but it's not the job of a father to tell a son how to live his life because he has to learn 
his own path. He has to find his own path. And one of the most difficult jobs of a parent is letting go. You love your son so much, you want to make the way of the world easy for him. But actually, easy isn't necessarily the best way through the world. Sometimes we need to make our own discoveries. And my suspicion is, is if you've written to me, you might have said this more than once. (laughs) And my suspicion is it's just become a bit of a battle between the two of you. And you're sort of almost asking me to weigh in with the final proof in your direction. So my suspicion is you've already made your point. And did you do the things you wanted to do? Or did you do the things that you felt you should do? And this is a tough question. How much is this about your son's life and how much of it is about your life? So I'll leave you with those questions and those thoughts as well. Brilliant, brilliant. I have to just say, I completely agree with everything you said. I never listened to a word my parents said, (laughs) ever, ever. Well, I think you can listen to them. You just don't have to follow their advice always. I never did. I never did. And they were very unhappy with me. But in the end, you know, they were afraid for me, but they saw that I found some success. And I think at the end of the day, life is about following your passion and making it meaningful for yourself, not for anyone else. Yeah. And I definitely think that um, having Vampire's Kiss and Nicolas Cage's movie on your CV and in your obituary, I mean, that's worth having. It might not actually have given you any pounds, shillings and pence, but it's given you plenty of kudos with me here today. Oh, I'm so happy. (laughs) So thank you very much for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Well, My life is meaningful because of the people in it and the love that I get from them and the love that I give to them. My life is meaningful because it's a world full of books and creativity, which I love. There is nothing better than going to a Broadway play or going to the West End. I mean, nothing. So creativity, theater, culture makes my life meaningful and my dog. (laughs) I love dogs and I love animals and I love nature and I, I love people. I love travel. That's what I think love. So we're going to continue our conversation. If you're a supporter, I'm going to be talking about how to feed your soul Korean style. And if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material, here is the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.